Welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. This is episode 1007, my interview with Anna Lembecki, and we're discussing her newest book, Dopamine Nation. Enjoy. Hello, Anna. Welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. Great to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I'm, um, I'm really excited about this conversation. I heard you speak on the Rich Roll Podcast, I think it was. Yes, that's right. And um, a fantastic, exciting book which um, we're going to get into, but just tell us a little bit about yourself. Whereabouts are you in the world? Well, I am here in Stanford, California. This is the Bay Area. Um, I am on the faculty at Stanford University. I am a professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine. And my job consists of seeing patients, teaching medical students and uh, residents, early career physicians, and also doing research and scholarly work. How do you do all that? Well, the, the job is designed as a, what, what's traditionally called a three-legged stool. So, um, you know, I have time for all of those domains. Yeah. That, yeah. you still got a smile, so it must <laughs> be somewhat rewarding. You know what? It's a really, I feel really privileged uh, to have the job that I have. It's a wonderful mix of clinical care and um, research, scholarly work, and also teaching. So I really like it. And what, what particular got, what got you into psychiatry and, and more so the field of uh, addiction? Well, I've always um, been attracted to enduring relationships with patients through time. And increasingly, the way that modern medicine is practiced, it's harder and harder to have those relationships. Psychiatry still affords us um, the ability to get to know our patients and to build those relationships. I've become interested in... um, in addiction medicine, not not on purpose. That was really by accident, um, as I was just noticing a lot of my patients with mood disorders and psychotic disorders, anxiety disorders were also struggling with co-occurring um, substance use disorders and other addictions. Right. Okay. That must be a hard field to be dealing with, with people like that. I, I could imagine, like I've never had to deal with people like that. I've had to deal with my own addictions. Um, but certainly to help others through it, I guess there must be a lot of reward in it, but also a lot of challenge, I suppose. Yeah, so people often ask me that, you know, whether or not the job is hard. And it's really, for me, it's it's not. It's really a joy and a privilege um, to, you know, be able to be a part of people's recovery journey, um, I'm so honored that people let me into the, you know, the most intimate parts of their lives. Um, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. It's never, you know, never two people are the same. Um, so it's, and I don't, people think, well, you know, is it, people often um, think wrongly that um, addiction is a, a hopeless disease and not at all. Um, it's really hopeful. And when people get into recovery, not only do they transform their own lives, but they transform the lives of the many people that they touch. So it's a wonderful field to be in because recovery happens and it's robust and it's hugely impactful. Yeah, yeah, wow. The um, This is not your first book. The book that I've, um, I'm excited to talk about is called Dopamine, Dopamine Nation, uh, but you've written many peer-reviewed articles in your time there and um, also another book called Drug Dealer. Tell us a little bit about that. 
So Drug Dealer MD um, was a book that I published in 2016, and it's an inside view of the causes of the U.S. opioid epidemic, yeah. really looking at some of the um, influences inside of medicine and medical practice that led to overprescribing of opioid pain relievers for minor and chronic pain conditions, which is essentially ground zero for our current opioid epidemic. Right. And what, I mean, was it just because the patients you were seeing, you saw this is a big problem or is it just like we're in Australia, we're not as aware of it. I think we don't have that opioid um, epidemic that you guys have. How did you sort of fall into writing that book? Well, again, that came out of my clinical work. So hmm. starting the early, very early 2000s, I started to see more patients presenting who um, were overusing, misusing, and or addicted to uh, prescription pain relievers often provided to them by my colleague down the hall or my colleague across the street. Um, so um, because of you know my privileged role as a psychiatrist and an addiction medicine doctor, um, I was finding out about this problem before other prescribers were. So I really got to see that there was a problem. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I wrote about it. Yeah. So what, what is the problem here with the opioid epidemic? And I guess back in 2000 to now, 2021, it's probably next level. You know, it's probably only right. just beginning. Right. So what started out as a very significant prescription opioid over-prescribing and over-consumption problem, um, which we saw a fourfold increase in opioid prescribing between the late 1990s and 2012. And with that increase, we saw a fourfold increase in the numbers of Americans getting addicted to opioids and the numbers of people dying from opioid overdose. And it just, it just, go, the graph just goes up just like this, just in parallel. Hmm. And then around 2010, we saw more heroin use. And then Around 2013, we saw more illicit fentanyl use, at which point the deaths really skyrocketed because especially um, fentanyl is so much more potent, so much more lethal. So now we're in what we call the third or even fourth waves of these epidemic of this epidemic where opioid prescribing started to trend down in 2012. But um, because of the lethality of fentanyl, we've seen a, you know, a spike, an ongoing increase, unfortunately. Uh -huh in um, opioid-related overdose deaths. So it's a really big big and ongoing problem. So what, when you're going into it, like what, what started the problem? Why was there an increase in, in prescriptions going out? Basically, the opioid pharmaceutical industry um, got hold of medical education and convinced doctors that as long as they were prescribing an opioid for a patient with pain, that that person was somehow bio literally biologically immune to the problem of opioid addiction. Um, and that was a very persuasive pseudoscientific argument that infiltrated every aspect of medical care. It was also a very convenient myth because doctors were having to see more and more patients with less and less time, being pressured to have you know, high ratings on patient satisfaction surveys as medicine became more protocolized and, um, you know, we have wow. a kind of fee-for-service system. So that was really the start of it. It was sort of a, a marriage between, um, you know, the propaganda from the pharmaceutical industry, opioid manufacturers, um, and distributors and pharmacies, in fact, 
uh, played a role as well. And then the needs of frontline healthcare providers who are seeing very complex patients with chronic pain and feeling like, oh, well, I can just prescribe this opioid with impunity. And it turned out that wasn't true. So where do most people get their information from? I mean, I assume these um, pharmaceutical companies are, are putting that propaganda, as you call it, into some domain where doctors have access to, to be their guidance as to what they should be and shouldn't be doing. Is it like an organisation where that information filters through for doctors? Well, I mean, the opioid pharmaceutical industry, you know, partnered with pretty much every uh, professional medical society and watchdog organisation that exists. They they donated large sums of money to medical schools. They funded continuing medical education that doctors have to take throughout their career to maintain licensure. I mean, there was nowhere that you could turn in the late 1990s and the first decade of this century where these messages were not promulgated. They were everywhere. They had completely infiltrated, um, you know, medicine. Yeah. It's a bit concerning, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's especially concerning because now, of course, this um, very effective um, marketing campaign, promotional campaign, has been exported outside of the United States to Europe, to China, to India, maybe even Australia. I don't yeah. know. Hmm. Yeah, and it, and it seems to just keep continuing, you know, with the pharmaceutical companies pushing their agenda, I suppose, and infiltrating, you know, what we think we should believe. Um, but look, I don't want to get too much into that. It's just it's a fascinating topic. Um, and I think it's very relevant for this day and age, you know, for people to at least um, have some critical thinking behind their choices. That's um, right. Be critical, critical patient consumers. Yeah, and I just, I, you know, I feel in, in recent conversations that we just don't. We just take what we get given and, and go for it and we're becoming very much that way. And the automation of society, which I think is a big part about your book, seems to be more and more that way as well, just, you know, we don't have to think anymore. We just are controlled. Yeah, that, that's right. We have to be really careful of that. Yeah. What, um, I had an offshoot question from that as well. But anyway, let's go into dopamine because dopamine is a really exciting thing and it's a really um, exciting chemical, I suppose. Um, how do you describe dopamine? Well, dopamine is a chemical in the brain. Um, it's a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge the gap between neurons. So neurons um, work by firing electrical signals from a presynaptic neuron to a postsynaptic neuron, but neurons end-to-end -end don't touch. There's a little space between them called the synapse, and that synapse is bridged by chemicals called neurotransmitters, and dopamine is one of them. Dopamine has different functions in the brain and in the body, but the one that I'm most interested in is um, how dopamine works to promote motivation, reward, pleasure. Mm. And dopamine is really the final common pathway um, for all addictive substances and behaviors. So understanding dopamine is really fundamental to understanding how the brain changes as people become addicted. Okay, yeah. So it's that reward center, So and, and I guess motivation to, to act again on something, um, okay. which evolutionary had a purpose, but... I mean, do you go back to the evolutionary purpose of dopamine and then to how it's been, I guess, it's just overdone now? Right. I mean, the whole premise of my book, Dopamine Nation, is that um, our primitive brains, which evolved over millions of years uh, and have um, you know, allowed us to survive um, yeah. and really thrive, 
are now no longer well matched to the modern ecosystem. Right. Basically, our you know our wiring, which has been conserved across species and generations, um, which has allowed us to approach pleasure and avoid pain, is very well adapted to a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, but is not very well adapted to the the current uh, ecosystem of really overwhelming abundance. And even more than overwhelming abundance, everything now has become drugified um, and we're, we've all become vulnerable to addiction as a result. So the purpose of you writing this book is to help us understand that and, and how it works and then obviously, well not obviously, but also to find balance. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the main things that I wanted to convey to folks about the neuroscience is that the, the constant bombardment of our reward pathways with high dopamine substances and behaviors has a huge personal and, and collective cost. Yeah. And the cost is that the way that our brains adapt to too much dopamine is by down-regulating production of our own endogenous dopamine and our own dopamine receptors, which essentially puts us in a dopamine deficit state which is akin to depression. And so my basic hypothesis is that the reason that rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, and addiction are going up all over the world, especially in rich nations, is not, is not primarily because we are traumatized or because you know, we have an income gap or because of whatever other factors you want to think of, we, we lack social cohesion. I mean, all those things are true. But my hypothesis is that the, the rising rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide are really because we have access to too much uh, dopamine and that mm. this kind of constant pleasure-seeking um, or hedonism is ultimately leading to anhedonia, or the lack of pleasure because of biological reasons, because of the way that the brain has to compensate and downregulate our own, in, you know, endogenous feel-good chemicals in order to adapt to all of this, all these drugs. So when you're saying there's endogenous dopamine chemicals uh, in our brain and I guess this extra stimulus that we're constantly bombarded by, how is that depleting that? that dopamine i'm not quite understanding that yeah so i mean the one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pain and pleasure are co-located so the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain Mm -hmm. and that work like two sides of a balance so when we do something pleasurable it tips our balance to the side of pleasure a little bit of dopamine is released but one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to maintain a level state or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. Mm As soon as we get a tip to pleasure, the brain will respond to that by down-regulating our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline. So I imagine that is these little gremlins. The gremlins represent neuroadaptation. They hop on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. So every pleasure is followed by pain. That's that 
come down hangover after effect or just that moment of falling away of feeling anxious because the video game is ending or the movie is ending or I'm wanting another piece of chocolate. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored and those feelings pass. But if we continue to pile feel-good drugs and behaviors on the pleasure side of our balance, we accumulate so many neuroadaptation gremlins on the pain side that we could fill this whole room. And then what happens is we essentially establish a new set point for experiencing pleasure and pain such that when we're not doing our drug, um, our balance is tipped to the side of pain. We are experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use our drug. Furthermore, other things <laughs> that, used to be, that used to be enjoyable are no longer enjoyable, right? So we have yeah. so many grounds over here that now when we go have dinner with friends, right, on the pleasure side of our balance, it doesn't, it doesn't tip it. We've, we've kind of, you know, changed our brains. And we have to use more and more of our drug of choice in order to just feel normal and level out that balance. And this is the process that occurs in the brain as it gets addicted. Addiction is a spectrum disorder. This is you know easy to conceptualize with something like heroin. People think, oh, yeah, I can imagine that, or people have experienced it. But my argument is we're doing in all kinds of ways, video games, sugar, shopping, texting, tweeting, um, gaming, gambling, like all of this is actually you know, bombarding the pain, the pleasure side of our our balance, which is leading to neuroadaptation such that we're ultimately ending up more miserable because of all of these kinds of drugified um, experiences. That's um, very well explained. It makes it simple to understand, I feel. And I have heard that sort of uh, being explained in a similar way. Um, So when you're addicted to something, your set point becomes lower. So when suddenly you take that away, um, and I've experienced this with my addictions, when you take that away, then you're feeling um, like a lacking. And so the best way that you know to fix that is to replace it with that thing or more of that thing or something even more potent that's going to give you that that reward. Exactly right. Yep, yep, you got it exactly right. And, And I think, I don't know, I think everyone has some sort of addiction or has had some sort of addiction. I think by now, most of us living in modern rich nations have, at least on a small scale, experienced some form of addiction, even if it's only to our smartphones or our laptops or food. Um, you know, these are kind of the, the, the modern day, every every man, every woman drug. But yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So we can't and bring in dopamine from outside. I mean, dopamine is a natural release chemical in the brain, but yeah. by stimulating it too much, is that what depletes it? Like we... And do we just keep going after this stimulus, even though it's not really giving us any major pleasure that it originally did? Yeah, because it's hard to observe cause and effect. Hmm. Um, and so it's very hard for us to see that the cause of our feeling bad is actually the things that make us feel good. Right. The implication of which is that paradoxically, to feel better, we need to avoid the things that make us feel good. And as I argue in the book, Dopamine Nation, even invite things that make us feel bad in the moment in order to feel better later. And I think importantly to understand the neuroscience, it's not just that we are depleting our dopamine or bringing it back to down level. 
to a level tonic baseline because we're not doing that. It's actually going below baseline mm. because the way that the brain restores homeostasis is not just to bring the balance level, but to actually tip it an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. Yeah. You know, and you could ask, well, why, why would nature do that to us? Like that seems particularly cruel, right? Why yeah. not just to bring it back level. And the reason is because, you know, in a, in a world of scarcity, your brain would want you, once you find something good like water in mm. an oasis, in a desert, um, it would be really advantageous if, you know, when that water runs out, you're not just like, oh, okay, I'm here, but you're actually then really thirsty again, because that will get you to go look for the other on thing. the next one. Mm. Yeah, to being a, an eternal seeker. Um, which is what we, what humans are. I mean, we're just like, we're rapacious, right? It's never enough. Our desire is infinite. And that infinite desire is rooted in our neurobiology and this pleasure pain balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's sometimes why, um, you know, my personal experience is that if I have a really shitty day, I go and have too much to drink mm-hmm. or equally, if I had a really good day, I'd go out and have too much to drink. Right. 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 You know? Well, that interesting that gets to the the stories we tell ourselves about why we're doing what we're doing right uh-huh. and we're and and we're sort of natural storytellers so we will generate these narratives to explain oh i'm drinking a lot because i had a really bad day it's like oh i'm drinking a lot because i'm celebrating you know and then it's like oh i'm drinking a lot because the sun came up <laughs> i'm drinking a lot because the sun went down right but somehow those stories um, they kind of rationalize what, what ultimately can turn into very irrational choices once we're in that addiction loop. And of course, the storytelling part of our brain is the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex, when things are going well, and that's that part of the brain, a gray matter part of our brain right behind our foreheads, that's the delayed gratification part of our brain, the, the storytelling part of our brain, the future consequences part of our brain. And when things are working well in the brain, then the prefrontal cortex is actually talking to the reward pathway or the pleasure pain balance and telling, you know, hey, slow down there. Remember last time when you did that and we ended up over here and that was really bad. But what happens with addiction is that basically the prefrontal cortex is no longer talking to, um, you know, the reward, the lower stem, brainstem reward pathways. And the pleasure pain balance is just reflexively doing its own thing. And then afterwards, our prefrontal cortex is kind of making up untrue stories about what that was all about. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. So that means once you've sort of gotten into an addiction loop, it's almost just the habit that you're doing it from that story that you're telling yourself, not even to do as much with that chemical imbalance. Well, I mean, the chemical is imbalance is the Still habit, it is it. the driver, right? No. So that basically it becomes reflexive. There, there almost is no story. There's no prefrontal check on it. It's your, the physiologic, once your pleasure pain balance is tilted to the side of pain, the physiologic drive to continue to use is enormous and very hard to overcome mm. because you just want to feel better, you know, and it, it's, it can happen totally outside of conscious awareness. And I hear this all the time from patients with severe addiction, like I was just driving home in my car. And the next thing I knew, I pulled into the parking lot of the bar and I was in there drinking. I can't even tell you that there was a choice or a decision around it. 
I was just doing it. And that's really true to the the neuroscience too, that you just got this like pleasure pain balance, these gremlins just doing their own thing, cut off from our ability to really assess cause and effect or have insight or predict future consequences. Yeah, yeah. No, I've experienced that myself actually. There you go. Yeah. Well, you're sort of telling yourself, no, nah, it's not going to happen. And then suddenly you find yourself, you know, doing it and you're just like, whoa. So interesting, really, really important stuff. And I guess that brings us to the question of then how do we manage this? Because if it's so powerful and we can't, you know, seem to control it on the surface level, then there's got to be a lot of work to unprogram this. And, you know, you talk about not just with um, drug addiction or alcohol addiction, but shopping, texting, I mean, where just society is, it's a big problem in society. I see, I don't know what your thoughts are, but oh, I don't yeah. know if it's going to get better. Yeah, I mean, the, the name of the book says it all, right? Dopamine Nation. So it's, mm. it's not an individual problem. It's, it's the problem of all wealthy nations. And it's the problem of, you know, overabundance. Um, and, the, and the intervention really is to do the thing that um, seems counterintuitive, which is to stop, at least for a period of time, doing the things that make us feel good. So th- that's it. It's, it's really a dopamine fast or abstinence long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that homeostasis can be, be restored. And, you know, I recommend a period of four weeks fasting from our drug of choice. If you can't do four weeks, you know, do less than that. Um, the minimum, absolute minimum is probably a day, but for people who really have crossed into addiction, probably a four weeks is going to be necessary. And the reason, again, for the dopamine fast is is twofold. Number one, to let the gremlins hop off so homeostasis can be restored, so we can regenerate our own endogenous dopamine, cannabinoids, opioids, serotonin, all of those, our own feel-good chemicals. And also so that we can look back and see true cause and effect. What I find fascinating in clinical care is how mm. often after fasting for four weeks, whether it's alcohol or cannabis or other drugs or, or you know, masturbation or shopping or gambling or video games, is that that really allows people to look back and say, wow, it almost seems surreal to me when I look back at what I was doing. I don't understand why I was so caught up in it or I didn't realize I was so caught up in it or it's so contrary to my values, I'm shocked I would have done that for, you know, the sake of the drug. Yeah, so yeah. Really powerful data to do that. And once people have done that, not only are they feeling better, but they're looking back and saying, gee, that was really strange. I don't want to do that again. And then they have motivation from the inside. It's not their spouse or their boss or me telling them, you know, you got to change your life. It's them going, I want to change my life. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like anything in time. I remember when I started exercising more, frequently you know getting up earlier and doing the exercise and it was hard at first but then after a while it's hard not to do it and that's right I think you look at it about how good you feel and if you miss a day you feel sort of bad and you actually do physiologically you feel sort of bad about not exercising so um what I mean that's difficult but to do a four why is it four weeks is there a particular reason for that or is it just a that's a combination of the limited data that we have on how long it takes to restore homeostasis and my clinical experience. So the data are um, the data points are there's imaging studies showing that 
at two weeks, patients who have been using or people who have been using addictive drugs like heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, that they're still in a dopamine deficit state. So their dopamine transmission in the reward pathway is still below normal compared to healthy controls at two weeks. Um, there's another data point showing that if you take individuals who um, meet criteria for alcohol addiction and are also meeting criteria for clinical depression, and you put them in a hospital for four weeks and don't give them any other treatment except that they do not have access to alcohol during that time, what you find is 80% of those individuals at the end of four weeks will no longer meet criteria for a major depressive episode. In other words, just not drinking resolves their major depression, which again gets to the balance. You know, that what felt like they were drinking to treat their depression really was the cause of their depression, but you can't wow. see it until you abstain long enough. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And that data point's important too, because it shows that 20% of people were still depressed even after a dopamine fast, which is good to know also. Though that's the 20% that probably needs treatment for depression as well as treatment for their alcohol addiction. Yeah. Uh, and then my clinical experience is just that four weeks is sort of the key point. I say to patients when they're doing a dopamine fast, you're going to feel terrible in the first two weeks, much worse than you feel now. But if you can just stay the course, by the time you get to weeks three and four, you will feel better and potentially better than you have in a, in a long time. And long I just time. see that in about 80% of my folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a good motivation to give that four yeah. weeks ago. And four weeks, I guess, for an addiction um, where you're doing something regularly, it, it, seemed, it might seem like a longer time. But it's really not it's that long, is it? Hard. I mean, there are some people who just can't do it, right? They have to go to an inpatient facility or they just need more support. Again, that, that's useful information too if you just mm. if you set the goal and you can't do it. The other caveat to this intervention is that I would never do it with somebody who had potential for life-threatening withdrawal from, let's say, alcohol or opioids or benzodiazepines like Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, because those types of drugs, if you stop them all of a sudden, people can go into life-threatening withdrawals with seizures. So you wouldn't want to do this experiment in those individuals, but that's really a small minority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like for those out there that, you know, and I've seen it more myself um, more at the beginning of the pandemic at least where I was jumping on my phone a lot more. Yeah. And I started realising how it was affecting me, um, so I had to try and get off it. Um, so, you know, things like that, like phone addiction. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people you know. don't really think they're addicted to their phone and then you ask them to put it away even for a single day and they see how hard it is mm. um, and they start to believe it, which is also a good thing about the dopamine fast because I think it can be a way, it gives people insight into the fact that they really do have a compulsive overuse problem. Yeah. So um, I do think that smartphone addiction is real and we're all struggling with it. Um, just imagine, yeah. just think about the last time you were in a meeting and you put your phone down and how long did it take before you were wanting to pick that phone up again and check it, right? It doesn't take yeah. but seconds for most no. of us. And resisting the urge to do that is powerfully difficult. Yeah. And that's the signal right there that we're dealing with a compulsive um, and potentially addictive problem. Yeah, I have to use my phone for my work. Um, I'm on it most of the day. Yeah. Uh, but I struggle with it. Like sometimes I'm just pulling it out to check it and I'm just like, what am I checking it for? Yeah, you know? right. But I guess I've got, um, I've created that level of awareness. At least I can pick myself up on it, even if I continue to do it. 
I guess it's that awareness piece. And I think that's the thing that's helping me a lot with these sort of things is just being more consciously aware Absolutely. and being able to think about what I'm doing rather than just about, you know, reacting. Right. You know, that mindful awareness of the, the, this, this, the pleasure pain balance and the gremlins and them stomping on that pain side and what that's causing, you know, us to do, um, is, is a really great, you know, place to start. And then the other thing that I talk a lot about in my book um, is self-binding strategies. So trying to put barriers in place, you know, limits, um, that allow us to, um, moderate our use, uh, which I think is really important. So it can be, um, geographic limits, like not having it in the bedroom or not, you know, having it in certain um, family gathering settings. So some kind of social etiquette around the smartphone. Also, um, time limits is really powerful. Trying not to check it before a certain hour in the morning and trying to put it away at a certain point at the end of the day. Because a lot of people will say, well, I have to check it for my work. It's like, well, do you really have to check it 24-7 for your work? Or could you check it from 9 to 5 and then put it away? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us could and should put it away. Um, and then other things like, you know, going grayscale, so it's less alluring, um, certainly turning off alerts. Alerts are just yeah. bad, bad, mm. bad. Because what alerts do is they trigger a little rise in dopamine followed by a little mini dopamine deficit state, which then triggers craving and then um, motivation to use the drug. So that same loop happens even just with an alert, even before we've picked it up. Yeah. And that alert could be a trigger, like when you're talking about a phone, it's a ping or something like that. But um, with a drug, it, it could just be seeing someone having a beer in front of you potentially. I guess is it that could similar? Be, it could be seeing somebody. It could be being in that place where you used to uh, drink a lot. Yeah. It could just be something that we call euphoric recall. Just remembering drinking can cause yeah. that little mini dopamine spike. And, the, you know, the craziest thing about the brain and the pleasure-pain balance is that even if we've had all these horrible consequences as a result of our drug and alcohol use, um, but that just, that's not what comes to mind. What comes to mind is how much we liked it, the good feeling. Even after it stops working, we don't remember that, right? We just, oh, man, I really want to get that feeling back, you know. Mm. It's, it's powerful. Yeah, very powerful. When you're in that deficit stage and, you, you know, you're going on this four-week fast, um, you're going to be feeling quite low, I imagine, and depending on your addiction level, um, somewhat lower. Do you find your patients or, or people generally will go out there and, and find replacements to prick that dopamine up? And is that a good thing necessarily or is it? can you find healthy replacements? Yeah, so that's something we definitely talk about is cross-addiction. Um, you know, we know from animal studies as well as human experience that once you've been addicted to something, to one thing, it's easier to get addicted to the next thing. So I always warn my patients, you know, you're giving up, you know, cigarettes, you know, you don't want to replace that with cannabis, right? Or if you're going to stop cigarettes, you don't want to smoke more cannabis if they're not wanting to give up both at the same time, which sometimes happens. Mm. Although I usually recommend trying to give it up all at once, but not everybody's willing to do that. So I try to meet patients where they are. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, here's there's a lot of replacement therapies, isn't there? Like, you know, tobacco smoking, you've got vaporizing now and, and patches right. and things like that. And um, as, a, as a smoker or ex-smoker myself, I feel that it doesn't work, like, you know, because you're just replacing one for the other and you really just need to get off it. But I guess some people need that slow decline. 
Yep. Some people do better with something with a, you know, kind of a safer replacement version, but you're right. It's, it's a different approach than the idea of the dopamine fast to reset reward pathways. Cause you're not, as long as you're pinging your reward pathway with a high dopamine substance or behavior, you're not really gonna, um, you know, trigger your own body's response to generate its own endogenous dopamine again. So that, that's really the, you know, the, the thing about that. Yeah, so you find people after four weeks really get back to this sort of natural level of yeah. pain and pleasure and I guess they probably start finding pleasure in a lot of those things that we can enjoy every day that are, are free to yeah. us and right. us. People, yeah, people to come back and they, we talk about pros and cons and usually what they say was a con was it was they were bored. They had all, of them, all this time and they were bored. <laughs> And another con, the most common con, is I couldn't hang out with my friends because all my friends use, and I couldn't be with them during that dopamine fast. But the pros are huge. I mean, people talk about being more clear-headed, being less anxious, less depressed, more present, able to enjoy things again that they haven't been able to enjoy for a long time. Mm. So, um, you know, a lot of powerful, good things that come out of it. And the other thing is you ask, well, what, you know, what, are, what other things can people do? One of the things that I talk about in my book that people can do, which is kind of paradoxical, is um, to actually press on the pain side of the balance through doing things that are physically and emotionally challenging. Right. Because just like when we press on the pleasure side, those neuroadaptations on the pain side, when we press on the pain side, those neuroadaptation gremlins hop on the pleasure side and ultimately reset our pathway to the side of pleasure. So, so that's a really powerful thing. That's why I recommend things like um, exercise. I recommend things like telling the truth all day long, no matter what, which is really hard, but which is uh, important for recovery. Um, I recommend you know just generally sitting and tolerating the distress, which is not something that culturally um, we're generally taught to do or taught to like take a pill or you know, do something that will take the pain away. But instead I talk about just like sitting with it and watching it pass over us like a wave. Yeah, yeah. Now that's some really good points. I'm I'm one of those people, I always find myself um, agitated, can't sit still. Yeah. Um, and I remember back to my childhood, I was always one of those kids that said, I'm bored, you know, because I just yeah. hated being still. I don't know if that's because I was addicted to just doing stuff. Not sure, but well, it's really challenging for me to just sit there yeah. And not have anything, not have any stimulus around me. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's hard for me too. I've always been a high energy person and, you know, I was like, like, like I cannot just sit still and meditate. Like people talk about meditating. I'm like, mm. I have to be walking and meditate. I have to be biking and meditate. So I do a lot of meditation, but I'm always doing meditation. How do you bike and meditate and walk and meditate? Oh, it's great. It's the best meditation ever. It's, it's wonderful. What do you do? Yeah. Well, you get on your bike and you find hopefully a, a hill nearby with not too many cars and you just keep riding uphill until your thoughts go away. It's great. You just drain your thought. It's good. It's really good. Just keep riding up a hill. <laughs> I like it. Do you find yourself just doing that with ease or do you still find yourself that you go, oh, I'm going to do this and you just have to push yourself into it? Oh, I, I hate it every single time. Yeah, yeah. You know, every 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 day I get up and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. But every single time I'm doing it, I'm like, thank God I'm here. And when I'm done, it's a much better day. That's the good stuff you got to do, isn't it? Good it stuff is. you got to do. I look at my kids and just go, look how 
I mean, they. I guess sugar is the one thing in, in our kids' diets that worries me, and I'm yeah. pretty sure it's the gateway to a lot of it. But yeah. um, other than that, they seem to find entertainment in the most simplest things. Yeah. Oh, I know. The I know. little kids especially are a joy. I take it your kids are still little. Six and nine. There you go. That Those are golden, golden ages. Keep them off of screens as long as you can. By the time they get to be 13 or 14, you're, you will have no more control. So while they're still in your control, teach them adaptive coping strategies, physical exercise, creative outlets, music. Show them that effortful engagement over many days does have huge rewards, but it's delayed rewards and it's subtle rewards. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. Keep them off the screens too. I always wondered whether, you know, gaming and screen time, because it seems to be such a, a big part of our society, if if we take that away from them or deny it from them, you know, are they going to be somehow impacted by um, less knowledge and experience in that sort of field? Right. So that was the big push for getting, you know, every, every child every a laptop. You know, we had this saying in the U.S., like each child, one child, one laptop. Well, it turns out that was a whole load of horse crap because every now it's more like one child, you know, one video game. Um, we don't need to worry about digital literacy in these kids. They, they mm. are already going to be more digitally literate by the time they're 15 than most adults on the planet. So that that is not a concern. Um, what we need to be concerned about is these kids getting mesmerized by screens and not having the capacity to, uh, you know, tolerate frustration or to be patient or to, you know, look for the answer in slow incremental ways or to entertain themselves or to go outside or to, you know, navigate complex social interactions. This is what we need to make sure that we teach kids because once they get on the screen, you know, it's just all so easy as pie. Mm. Yeah, you make a really good point in that that longer-term practice to get a reward, much more beneficial than jumping on a screen or, or having some sugar. Like, That's right. Yeah, yeah, profound point. I know you have to go, so I really appreciate you coming on. I'd love to do this again sometime because your work fascinates me and I know the audience are going to love it too. So, Anna, thank you for coming on to the Hidden White Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. That's good. No, absolutely. Guys, you can check it out at thehiddenwire.com. And uh, until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Martin Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.